The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Last Sunday, some things hit me as I was trying to share with talking about the uh, three temptations of Christ. And it sort of turned into a mess because I got all these other ideas after I'd already prepared to say something completely differently. And not only did I begin last Sunday by mocking those who go more than 10 minutes, I went for 20. And I was still a mess. So, God, I get it. No false rules. You really hate them. But what I want to do for tonight is to break up into three five to seven minute videos some of the things I saw last Sunday. Now, the first you may have already heard. Bear with it. It's a foundation for the second, which is a little bit harder to take. The third is not really friendly at all. Not at all. I want to summarize the three things Satan offered Jesus. Now, you got a Bible, read it yourself, it's Matthew chapter 4. What Satan was trying to do was to overcome the second, no, the third promise of the Bible, which God had made directly to Satan in Genesis 3. After creation is finished, the story of the Bible begins with three promises. Two of them are from God, one of them from Satan. And these promises structure the entire history that's going to follow, that's laid out in, um, in the scriptures and in the whole world. The first promise God made was, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. That's a promise. You do this, then that will happen. God promises that all morality and laws which make possible human society and the fruitful developments of the earth depend on his standards and people living by them. Alternative moralities end in the destruction of society, the destruction of the earth, and death as a result. You shall not die. Satan promised that the fruitful development of the world and society depends on a covenant with him. And any he's a much better Lord because he's like open for diversity. Any alternative moral code makes a glorious future. And not only that, you can be equal with God. That's a possibility. You shall not die, was Satan's promise. On your belly you shall go. Dust shall you eat, was the third promise that's made in the, in, in the entire Bible. In this promise, God permits history to continue, even with Satan as the covenant head of creation. But he does it with this promise. All who covenant with Satan, all who involve in his society, his headship, his diversity of morality can rise as high as a snake's head, and his promises will be found to be as fulfilling as desert dust. Not even dirt. Dirt at least has some moisture in it. It has the possibility of fecundity and for fruitfulness. It's just the desert dust. That's all that lies on the other side of Satan's promises. So, when we come to Christ coming out of his baptism, walking into the desert, we now find that Satan is back in the Garden of Eden with Jesus. They're standing there, the second Adam. 
and Satan is attempting to win round two and so secure the covenant headship of creation. See, the result of God's promise is that Eden has become a desert. And there they stand. I know it doesn't look like Eden, with the trickle of a Jordan, the river of life, flowing along behind them. The promise of God that binds Satan after he made his offer to Eve, Jesus, or you, even after you might accept these offers, though Jesus didn't, as Eve accepted them, the promise of God binds together. It's a thread which ties these temptations of Satan together. Each temptation denies that Jesus Christ is the starting point for any good thing in life. Each answer Jesus gives to Satan affirms that God and his word, namely Jesus Christ himself, is the only starting point for any good thing in life. Now, if you're someone who defends the faith, compare Satan's evidentiary approach. If you are the son of God, prove it. That's what an evidentialist does to the Bible's presuppositional approach. This is my beloved son, hear him. Now, I know he says that later on in Jesus' ministry, but what he says here is, you shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, what do you think, this is my beloved son, hear him, means? Those two are the identical statements, just said in a different way in a different place. So, if the answer to the hope that is within you is to find a way to prove who Jesus is, Jesus is, you've played right into Satan's hands. Christian defense of the faith and Christian interpretation of Scripture is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, found in every word, every line of Scripture, and in all things in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And if you can't see it, you're just blind. So if you just look at what Satan wants to do with anything he says is good for you, when you look at Satan's promises, you can start by understanding that they all look pretty good. I mean, why would Satan come to you and say, hey, psst, you want to go to hell and burn forever? <laughs> That's pretty cool, you know, let's go do it. There actually might be some groups that find that as an interesting alternative. But when you look at Satan's promises, they will always look pretty good. I mean, from your daydreams to genuine offers and opportunities that he gives you. No, you don't call them temptations. You call them offers and opportunities. They, they, you sit around thinking, well, why not? And the reason they look good is not because he's such a clever liar. It's because they are good. You see, it's God who made every appetite, and he made the satisfaction for every appetite. And he gave you his rules on how to satisfy them in ways that'll just crown your days with glory. See, Satan can't create a new world. He can only take what God has given and twist and distort what God has already done, and that's really all he has to offer you. So the way to overcome Satan is to take a minute to compare the fruit of his promises with the fruit of what God offers in his word. I promise, this is applicable to any temptation he can give you. Be stunned at the initiated broken sterility of the desert he offers just on the other side of his dreams and the offers that he makes. The dreams and the offers that say, Hey, I got a better idea of what to do with all the good ways God's made the world. So Satan offers bread for stones. Look in every word that comes from the mouth of God to find what Jesus does with stones. He will be sure that none of the stones are left one on the other. If you want to be a literalist, he did that in 
70 AD. If that seems to be too much for you, he will take the stony hearts and turn them into hearts of flesh. That's what salvation's all about. He will take his disciples and make them stones in the foundation of his temple and city, and then he's going to take his people and make them living stones and fit them together into a dwelling place of God. And when they pick up these stones to do that with Jesus, he shows his power over the death penalty by walking right through the middle of the crowd as it picked up stones to kill him. He was with God when the terms of execution were written into the law of Moses. Those are his words. So he has nothing to fear when the false stones men might throw come towards him. Jesus is that stone of Ebenezer. Thus far have you brought us. And the stones of remembrance in the middle of the Jordan. Thus far have you brought us. Eat my body, drink my blood in remembrance of me. Thus far has he brought you every time you share in his supper with him. In fact, Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He's the rock in a weary land. He is the rock upon which you build your house or will collapse in the winds and the rains. He's the rock from whom water flowed in the desert, the waters of life. But more than that, Jesus is the bread of life. His recreated, transformed, glorified living stones, his new creations, you are going to get to eat it. Excuse me, Satan, what was that you said about stones and bread? Now, if you grasp this point, that what Satan offers is a tiny slice of something good, which he has stolen from God, and he offers this to Jesus, he offers suckers like you and me, and he tries to convince us that he is the author of every good and perfect gift, and then he offers them to you, if you will only. Now we'll look at the two other temptations. So let's move from the first temptation of Jesus to see how the other two show how Satan fulfills that third promise of the Bible. And also in Satan's conversation with you, Satan is fulfilling God's Genesis 3 curse to him. On your belly you shall go, dust shall you eat. The best Satan will ever be able to do is to offer belly crawling, dirt-eating satisfaction. And if there is any satisfaction you get from it, the ultimate irony and insult to Satan is that it's because God created the appetite that's being fulfilled. God created the pleasure from having that appetite fulfilled. Satan genuinely has nothing he can offer by way of fulfillment, by way of appetite, by way of joy, by way of pleasure. He can only offer perversion. So we look at the great secular civilizations, the great achievements of mankind, and we get totally impressed by all Satan has to offer. Look at these great stones built one on the other. And Jesus answers by comparing Satan's offer to God's offer of transformed life and a transformed creation. See, Satan offers this pissant little magic of stones into bread, this pathetic leap from the pinnacle of the temple, what, 100, 200 feet, 300 feet, if we exaggerate? And that proves what? Proves that angels care? That Jesus can eat supper? That Jesus is God? That Jesus owns the world? Now, look at the 91st Psalm. The 91st Psalm, Satan quoted to Jesus saying, For it is written, He will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And you remember that pattern that we saw in the very first temptation of what Jesus does is if you step back from any temptation, any offer Satan makes to you, as good as it might look, and as much as you perhaps can't see 
what might be wrong with it. If you just step back from it and look at what God has to offer, here Jesus does the same thing with the 91st Psalm. He's going to have it send his angels to bear you up. Look, Jesus understood that Psalm. It's a Psalm David sang to comfort Jesus Christ on the cross when his heel was dashed and pinned in place with the iron nails of the serpent's teeth. It's from that stumbling block that the angels would bear him up. Satan offers a little flying trip. Throw yourself off. The angel will catch you. God offers the redemption and the transformation of the world. What the hell has Satan offered you lately that you find so inter interesting that you can't step back from and say, wait, wait a second. What does God offer as good as that may seem? See, when you are drawn to sin, it's because it makes sense. Just like these offers to Jesus do. Step back, you'll always find with Christ that Satan offers a cheap, chewed-up bone under the table. Where still, you're going to have to fight for it from all the other dogs under the table, just in order to drag it off into a corner and gnaw it. The corner of your miserable self-satisfaction. And all the time, above you, God has set his table with a feast that's waiting for you if you simply walk God's way. Just walk over to the table, sit down, give thanks and eat. Satan will make belly-crawling, dirt-eating interesting and even valuable in a natural, craving way. These, why? Because these are appetites God has given you. What's more natural than to satisfy them? The girl is cute. The boy is sweet. You want to marry anyway. Why not live together using modern tools of sterilization and disease control? See, God offers her a nation to spring from her womb. He offers you generations to come from your loins. Why would you trade that for a night in the sack or just to move in and cohabitate somewhere? Oh, oh, I see. You're going to go get married anyway. Boy, that's Discipleship 101. Why would you want to train your future husband or wife to go to bed with people they are not married to? That's really bright. Understand, the principles of discipleship aren't just for sitting in church and listening to some guy preach. They had to do with the things day in and day out that you find so tempting, so interesting, so wonderful. And you wonder why God created assholes? It was a part of the body described some of us best. But there's more. You see, to get away from personal temptations, look at the bigger picture. When Satan offers disease-free, pregnancy-free sex, what he's just done is he's taken the church down. The church is struck speechless because it's failed to teach God's purpose in life. For the last 10 years, I've been going around asking people, They've solved the problem of sex. They've solved the problem of disease. They've even solved the problem of pregnancy. What is to keep a young person pure? What do you say to them? And you know what? I don't get any answers. For 10 years, I've been asking people that question. See, we traded for the quick, that is, we trade the whole counsel of God. And we've done this for generations. For the quick and ready, don't do that, you'll get pregnant. Or don't do that, you'll get a disease. Really? Where is that disease and pregnancy found in the Bible as having any relevance to sex outside of marriage? You see, we take Satan's quick and ready solution, and now when he assaults everything that is holy in the womb, in covenant, in family, you have nothing to say. Excuse me, you might. The church has nothing to say. You yourselves have no understanding of what sex 
fruitfulness and family and covenant really are, because all you've talked about is disease and pregnancy. And not only that, you've made pregnancy such an unwanted thing that most Christians go, well, you know, I can really understand abortion's a difficult decision. What is difficult? A commercial that had the, the very lovely girl sitting in a chair. Actually, I, I knew her. They made a commercial out of a friend of mine years ago. She's sitting in a chair and she says, you know, for a long time, I, I really struggled with what to do, but I'm so glad I gave my baby life. And I just wish that we could have had the same commercial with a husband sitting in the chair saying, you know, I struggled hard, but that teenager of mine, you know, to the moon. But I didn't kill him. I decided to give him life. And the wife sitting there said, saying, you know, my husband, there's so many times I wanted to poison his tea, but I am so glad that I gave him life. It's absurd, and yet that commercial is designed to appeal to Christians. That's how far we are away from even understanding the first thing about sexuality, about fruitfulness, about family, and about marriage, and one of the greatest Christian teachers on the family in the 20th century actually said, if it wasn't for the, sterile, my, the, the ability of my wife and I to sterilize ourselves, we could never have had the ministry we had. Find that anywhere in the scriptures. Find anywhere in the scriptures where God says, what I hold for you is a sterile desert. And so we're shocked when Satan comes along and says, ha ha, solve the problem. Now you can have sex. What are you going to say now, church? You see, this is the very thing that we struggle with as Christians. When you leave what scripture says and go your own way, it's not that the alternative is, let's come up with a law that says, no, you really can't do this. It's what do the scriptures say are so much beyond a law that you could make. We're talking about a vision of the transformation of the earth. And we're wondering whether or not we can move in with something. We're talking about the vision of the transformation of family, of who we are as people, so that 10 Gentiles come and try and grab a hold of the cloak of one Jew saying, let us go with you for God is with you. And we trade that for a bunch of do's and don'ts, the entire moral law of God. We have nothing to say because we built our case on disease and freedom from children. We built our case on disease and sterility. And now the church is speechless. We accepted the offer of Satan, which Jesus very wisely there turned down after the Jordan. What I've done is last Sunday, I ran into some ideas that I tried to integrate as I was going along in freelance and they didn't come out very well. So I want to take Wednesday night as a time to uh, sort of sum up and present some of the ideas that I got. This is the third one. Hopefully we've got some popcorn or something going between mm -hmm. the first two. Something I learned from a vineyard church that after praise and worship, everybody goes to concession stands, gets popcorn, and then comes back. So um, if you got your popcorn in hand. This third temptation of Christ was made for Calvinists, particularly. But really, it's applicable because I'm a Calvinist and Therefore, I, I understand how that theology tears people up much better than I do what's wrong with, with your theology in case you differ. You may be a Thomist, a, an Arminian, or whatever. And so whether this applies to me, I don't know. But I can't apply it to me and to us. The third temptation was made for us, particularly the more pure you believe your doctrine is. 
It brings to a crescendo the point of these temptations. Satan will take the best of God and his creation and trade it to us if we will just honor him with it. In our case, if we will just develop true doctrine, but not live by every word from the mouth of God, if we would just, if you're a reconstructionist, if you're a theonomist, if you would just thoroughly, completely understand God's law, but not obey every word from the mouth of God, Satan will give us the finest theology in history, in the history of the world. And if we would just honor him according to the very monuments of theology we have erected to God's glory, he promises that we will not be identified with those who, who murdered and shed the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves, he said, that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Prepare to receive all the innocent blood from the foundation of the world, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was shed between the uh, porch and the altar. That's Jesus' promises to, to us who have traded the doctrine we say we have are guardians of for the promise to Satan never to live as if it's true. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed to him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now at this point, Satan had dozens of verses he could have quoted. They're the dominion verses, which we Calvinists are so fond of. Every one of them Satan could have quoted. Daniel 1, where the, the statue of the kingdom of man is blown away by the, by the stone cut from the mountain that grows to be the mountain of God, the kingdom of God. Uh, Daniel 7, where the kingdom is given to the Son of Man, he destroys all of the uh, kingdoms of this world, bestial, uh, particularly the beast coming out of the vision. And interestingly enough, the interpretation of the vision, he doesn't mention the Son of Man, the angel talks about the, the saints of the Most High who inherit. That's you. That's your identification with the Son of God, so thorough that his name isn't even mentioned. Psalm 72, where the kings of the earth bring their tribute, the admonition to kiss the sun lest he be angry with you, which is based on the fact that the sun has all power. The destiny of Christ was to rule the earth, but Satan comes to him and offers what belongs to him anyway. If he will only honor Satan, it's a small thing. I mean, what's the big deal? He's getting the whole earth. And you can see again that picture of which the belly crawler tries to make it look as if he's got dominion, when in fact he has nothing. And his promises are more than dust. Satan comes to you and he offers you the finest understanding of God, his world, his word, and his future for God's people. For crying out loud, you're post-millennial. You're the optimist, or you're amillennial. I mean, you understand stuff about the second coming, which is impossible for anybody without a PhD to understand. If only you will not live by it. He'll let you understand all that stuff. He'll let you explain it, write books about it, read books about it. Eat it for your nourishment. Live by it for your way of life. Die by it like Jesus did. If only you would honor him with the highest truths of God and his word. Just don't do those things. Don't live by it. Don't eat it. Don't die by it. Honor him. It's a simple request. It is to you Calvinists, Reconstructionists, Theonomists, Presbyterians, Amillennists, whoever you are who thinks 
that your theology is God's own relation. Have you accepted the deal that Satan offers you? Do the, you might say, oh, no, not me. We are righteous. We're not like those Pharisees over there. Okay, do the wicked rule the land so much so that in the last election you're left with two people, neither of whom you could imagine worthy of your association with by voting? Do you think that just happened over the last election cycle? Where do you think they came from? Are babies murdered close to where you live? How many girls in your churches have murdered covenant children? I'll tell you what, you go down, you stand in the abortion clinics, and you will see the, the, the flyers and the hymn books and the Bibles of almost every major church in almost any city you're in, in the windows of where they park their cars. Do you even know who represents you, where the laws of the land are made, where the laws are judged, and where the laws are executed? Do you even know what the next law is, what they're voting for, what's going on? Are you so ignorant? Do you reject people who tell you to act on your theology because you are so ignorant and childlike that if truth be told, you have no clue where to begin? Your head is stuck so far up your own, your own theological opinion that when you pull it out halfway, you think you smell fresh air. Satan said to you, just take the direct route. Hey, Jesus, look. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to go through all that stuff. Just let me rapture you out of the world. I'll give it to you. You worship me. It's cool. Satan says to you, just take the direct route. There it is. All the kingdoms of the world, all the theology of the world, yours. Just do what Adam and Eve did. Take the plunge. He said it so long ago, you don't even remember in your own life. You traded that seminary education for peace with the world. When you traded that realization, wow, God is sovereign and he rules all things and he's going to transform the world. And you, and, and, and you traded that love affair with that God for this darkness that's all around you. You don't even remember that. But at some point, you made that deal. Your parents made that deal. Your grandparents made that deal. The people who wrote the theology books, which you read so hungrily and so greedily, made that deal so that the world can, can continually murder children right at the doorsteps of your own church. So the world can hold elections with people you don't even know who are running, why they're running, or what the issues are. The world, the OU, Mr. and Mrs. Dominion belongs to the Lord. Jesus is the King of Kings person. You are the one who ends up saying, I don't know where to begin. Well, be an abolitionist. Be against, well, of course I'm against abortion. Of course I'm an abolitionist. Of course I wanted to end. Of course I may have rescued way back when and gotten arrested. But the reality is you hate people like that because they're asking you to do, do something and you don't have a clue where to even start on the dominion that your theology says belongs to Jesus Christ, belongs to the saints of this world. It's, friends, it's your theology that says that. And you get all puffed up about it when you're talking to some <clears throat> Arminian, somebody who's waiting for the rapture. You are so wise, you know better than that. <clears throat> But if this darkness is all around you, you can know that you have accepted his offer to become great in the knowledge of the things of God and twice as fit for hell because of it. To whom much has been given, 
to those who stand as doorkeepers of the gates of heaven. You elders, you hold the keys of the kingdom. What do you think that means? You think it means you have the power of the very doors of heaven. Understand that from you, do not block that door. Do not make yourself one convert twice as fit for hell as you are yourself. Look at Satan's offer. What did he hold out to you? What did he hold out to your fathers and your father's father? What did they accept so that the world could be like this, so that your neighborhood could be like this? Or have you made enough money so that you're able to move away from all that? You're not in the trailer parks with the meth. You're not in the inner city where they're killing each other right and left. No, you're in a safe place. Are you? Are you as safe in the hands of God in your nice little suburbs as you are in his hands in jail or in the inner city or living in a trailer park reaching out? Are you really as safe where you are? What did Satan offer? What did he hold out? First of all, he held out to Jesus Christ all kingdoms and power, but they were not rightfully his in the first place. Jesus Christ was the rightful heir of all that Satan offered him. It's as if someone snuck into your parents' house, stole everything, and then offered to give it to you if you would just do what they say. Which, by the way, is what the government is now doing. Your government, that you and your fathers and your fathers voted into existence or stuck your head in far worse place than a hole in the ground, to somehow say that area of dominion does not belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's another kingdom over there. They say, pay us all your money and we'll buy you everything we think you need. Satan stole that inheritance in the garden and now thought he could buy Christ, the heir, with what was rightfully Christ. Come, I'll give it all to you. Just honor me. Another issue raised here is the question of who is in charge of the earth. Today, many will tell you that the earth is Satan's do domains. The world properly belongs to him. Societies and governments and social orders are his. We hold against them as a small Band, we, the few, the brave, the proud. But here this temptation of Jesus puts a lie to this claim. Yes, Satan has provisional rule up to the time of this testing, but that rule is about to be broken once and for all. When we get to the cross, we see Christ stating in John 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. From the cross onward, Christ is ruling the earth as the heir and son who passed every test. He passed those tests in your place, and he has driven out the false ruler. You may be a Christian who, in honest ignorance, doesn't understand that Jesus Christ rules the world. But if you're a Christian who believes in those verses of dominion, who believes that Jesus Christ is king of kings... Do you live as if Jesus rules the kingdoms, the families, the businesses, and the churches of this world? Stop. Do you live as if Jesus rules the earth? What are the implications of saying yes? Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea 
and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.